This is Update One, the podcast of the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Update One provides a forum for listeners to learn about national and international stories, focusing on journalism and communication issues, news, and politics. Now, the latest edition of Update One. Welcome to another edition of Update One. Hello, I'm Link Smith from the National Press Club Podcast Committee, and we are joined today by Dr. John Lanchowski, the founder and president of the Institute of World Politics, an independent graduate school of national security and international affairs. Dr. Lanchowski, welcome, sir. It's great to be with you, Link. You served as Director of European and Soviet Affairs on the National Security Council, and you were the Principal Soviet Affairs Advisor to President Ronald Reagan. And in 1990, you founded the Institute of World Politics. Can you tell us more about your career? Well, I um, have worked here in addition to my government service. I, I mean, I served in the State Department as well and on a congressional staff. I taught at the University of Maryland. Uh, I worked at the American Enterprise Institute. I taught for 15 years altogether at Georgetown University. And um, as a result of my uh, service in the government, I found that a lot of people were doing jobs for which I thought they were inadequately prepared. And uh, I included myself in that number. I found that Virtually nobody except senior military officers ever studied military strategy. I believe diplomats ought to understand something about that, as well as the policymakers who send our men and women in uniform into harm's way. Uh, I believe that the military art has to be integrated with the diplomatic art. Um, I found that most intelligence officers had never studied intelligence. And there's a lot to study uh, that would uh, elevate your professional capacities if you have done that study beforehand. And that includes the history of intelligence, understanding the operational traditions of other uh, countries' intelligence services, uh, understanding... Uh, the uh, policy issues and the legal issues surrounding intelligence, understanding the uh, epistemological issues. Uh, epistemology is, is the theory of knowledge. How do you know something is true? How do you know that you're not being deceived? And, virtu- and, and the whole study of disinformation, propaganda, and deception has never been a systematic part of the foreign policy or intelligence uh, education of, of people in serving in all of our different agencies. You would think that the study of deception would be a, uh, a, a, a normal, consistent discipline in our intelligence community, and yet we pay attention to it only episodically. There were other gaps. Nobody studies counterintelligence. Uh, the, it's, and, and, and people equate counterintelligence with counterespionage. But counterespionage is only part of the deal. The rest of it has to do with other activities that foreign intelligence services do. And that includes things like disinformation, covert 
political influence operations, a foreign influence and interference in our elections. Uh, these are things that uh, we worked on in the Reagan administration. We had a thing called the Soviet Active Measures Working Group. It was an interagency group. Uh, we collected intelligence on all of this stuff. We analyzed it. We selectively declassified it and we publicized it in order to blunt the impact of, 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 of these Soviet active measures. Um, then in the whole field of diplomacy, uh, virtually nobody was well educated in the whole field of public diplomacy, which uh, means relations with foreign publics, with people, not just governments, and with foreign uh, opinion makers, whether they are editorial boards, professors, imams, uh, authors, filmmakers, theatrical people, uh, whoever it is who can affect the culture and, and public opinion. We used to do some of this kind of thing uh, in the U.S. government on a more systematic basis. We used to have a thing called the U.S. Information Agency that was a, an exclusively a public diplomacy agency. But this was shut down during the Clinton administration uh, and only a shadow of its former capabilities were folded into the State Department, which doesn't really care very much about that. And then there are elements of economic strategy that were being neglected. And I found that uh, there was no school in the United States in the government or outside of the government that was teaching these subjects adequately and I felt compelled to start an independent school that would cover each of these instruments and the, we call them arts of statecraft and uh, we conceive of them as instruments in an orchestra and you have to learn how to play your instrument but you also have to know how it's integrated into the larger symphony. Part three of the late Senator John McCain's book, Character is Destiny, includes a chapter dedicated to Mr. Eric Hoffer. And he was the longshoreman who became a philosopher and explained the purpose of freedom. And he was the author of the book, The True Believer, Thoughts on the Nature of Mass Movements. Mr. Hoffer says, quote, to the frustrated, freedom from responsibility is more attractive than freedom from restraint, they are eager to barter their independence for relief from the burdens of willing, decoding, and being responsible for inevitable failure. Indeed, they willingly abdicate the directing of their lives to those who want to plan, command, and shoulder all responsibility. End quote. From your perspective, are the frustrated, if I may, the true believers, are they more prevalent today in 2020 around the world or perhaps not? That's It's a very, very interesting question. Um, a number of different things come to mind here. We have the rise of social sympathy with socialism in this country uh, that is based on an utter ignorance of what socialism is, of what its historical record is, and it's not simply the record under the, uh, the states governed by international socialism, i.e. Marxism-Leninism. 
It's also the absolutely pathetic record of socialism in Great Britain when it was the ruling ideology of the Labour Party uh, or the uh, even attention to the realities of socialism in a place like Venezuela, which was once one of the most prosperous uh, and richly endowed countries in the Western Hemisphere. Um, it is the, the ignorance of socialism uh, is is one of the most breathtaking uh, social and political phenomena that we see today. And the fact, but one of the problems here, of course, is the total failure of our educational system to be able to, uh, to, to, to teach people about some of these realities. Uh, we learn a little bit about the Nazis, and that's thanks to the fact that you know, thank God for the Jewish community keeping alive uh, the memory of the Holocaust. But, you know, there are other uh, aspects to the whole Nazi ideology which are not well taught, uh, which are socialistic because, uh, after all, Nazism means uh, national socialism. And, and so that's, that's one problem. And of course, the lure of socialism is precisely the lure that you can be taken care of in a cradle-to-grave uh, welfare system uh, where you, you trade your uh, personal responsibility and your freedom for uh, some kind of social security, so to speak. Uh, and, um, and, and one is reminded of the Aesop fable of the uh, of the wolf who comes upon uh, the dog uh, who is uh, penned in in a cage, and the dog uh, says to the wolf, uh, you know, gee, why don't you come in here and be well fed and and uh, uh, you know and nice and warm? And the wolf says to the dog, I would rather have my freedom uh, than be penned up in your cage. Uh, and uh, so this is this is a uh, a story that's uh, that is old as the hills, uh, but then we look, for example, at uh, the rise of Islam, radical Islamism, and the alienation of uh, you know of of ill assimilated populations in Europe, of Islamic uh, immigrant populations in Europe, and uh, their sons and daughters, who uh, you know don't particularly feel like they're part. Of of the, their adopted country, um, they uh, they are big, they some of them don't have good jobs. They don't uh, they can't find meaning in their lives, uh, and they're ready to be lured uh, by the siren song of of the jihadists who will either uh, help catapult them into heaven uh, or 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 into. The, the lap of luxury in the new Islamic state uh, where they can have their sex slaves and, and, and so on and so forth. There are all of these different appeals to various types of true believers, but uh, it, it is a phenomenon that can be found in many different places. On Friday, 5 April 2019 at the White House Historical Society, you joined Polish Senator and Secretary of State of International Dialogue, Anna Maria Anders, 
and retired U.S. Army Brigadier General Tom Constantino. And it was as part of the Kuklinski Museum discussion series 30 years after the fall of communism in Europe. The subject of the panel discussion was, quote, Poland, the United States, and NATO confronting the Russian threat. During your remarks, you highlighted some challenges both China and Russia present to the free world, with both China and Russia remains to you our greatest national security concern today in 2020. Well, um, apart from the, the internal challenges that we face, the threat to our national immune system, um, I believe that Russia and China and radical Islamism as well are the three major threats that we face. Um, I, I think that we uh, – I believe that the threat from Russia is handleable. I think that the Russians uh, under Putin have uh, a seething resentment about the loss of their superpower status in the Cold War. Putin said publicly that the collapse of the USSR was the greatest political catastrophe of the 20th century. Uh, he has been working on trying to build up Russia as a, as a great power. He's building up its nuclear arsenals, its air defense systems, and all sorts of other elements of its military. And he's been behaving aggressively in a number of geostrategic theaters. Um, but I believe that uh, we can manage that relationship. Uh, I think we can deter Putin. I think that if we... Uh, maintain our eye on the ball with preserving the NATO alliance, strengthening the eastern flank of NATO. Um, the, the Russians can be deterred and we can handle them diplomatically. I think that the greatest threat that we're facing as a nation is from China. And the Chinese uh, have been uh, – the, the threat is so multidimensional. Uh, let me just review some of the ways. The Chinese have the biggest military buildup on the face of the earth. Their navy will be exceeding the size of ours if it hasn't already. <clears throat> the, uh, they have been building these military base islands in, in the South China Sea. They have a global strategic presence at every uh, – just about every major naval uh, strategic choke point in the world, whether it's a demographic or infrastructural presence. They have their Belt and Road Initiative in order to establish bases in countries all over the place and co-opt people in different, different countries throughout the world in, 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 in a kind of a debt trap colonial. It's, it's a far cry from the Marshall Plan. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, the Chinese uh, have a, a, a global economic strategy. It is a, a mercantilistic, beggar-thy-neighbor trade policy. Uh, the Trump administration ha is the first one in, in many administrations to start telling the truth about this, to trying to, to, to impose some kind of corrective measures to make trade truly reciprocal as opposed to one-sided. Um, the Chinese have been involved in the greatest theft of our intellectual property uh, the, upon which we depend for our global economic competitiveness and our military and intelligence uh, edge uh, over our adversaries. 
Uh, <clears throat> but there are there are tens of thousands of Chinese intelligence collectors in our country. There are uh, one of our alumni who is a uh, a spectacularly successful counterintelligence. Uh, agent in Silicon Valley reports that there are probably 25,000 Chinese intelligence collectors in Silicon Valley alone. Uh, we give away our technology to the Chinese. We permit the Chinese to make 5,000 visits a year to our national laboratories where a visit constitutes a stay of two weeks to two years. Um, we have permitted them to set up Confucius Institutes, which are propaganda centers that are also suspected of being uh, coordinating centers for Chinese espionage on American university campuses. They're designed to chill uh, criticism about Beijing's uh, military espionage and human rights policies uh, that may come from American university campuses. The Chinese have corrupted our media. Uh, the, the, the major newspapers in this country, a couple of which, the Washington Times and I mean the Washington Post and the New York Times, uh, the Washington Post and the New York Times both take uh, enormous amounts of money from Beijing's propaganda ministry uh, to to to, uh, to publish Chinese Communist propaganda uh, su uh, supplement. And um, uh, these newspapers do not report uh, a lot of strategic developments that are inimical to the national security of the United States. Um, our major think tanks, many of them, are report reliably reported to have engaged in uh, collaborative arrangements with front companies, uh, excuse me, front organizations of the Chinese intelligence services. They take money from those, uh, from those intelligence services. Our universities take money. Harvard took $250 million from China. Stanford has gotten millions. There's just been a report by the education department about, about $6.5 billion in foreign money received by, um, uh, by American universities. Uh, which has, I believe, uh, in many, not all cases, but in many cases, a, a, a corrupting influence on, on academic integrity. Um, and then there is the political neutralization of our business community, uh, that so many of our businesses are in hawk to China. <clears throat> they depend upon Chinese financing. They're involved in joint ventures. They depend upon they're the factories they've set up to use cheap Chinese labor um, in order to manufacture goods for re-export to the United States. <clears throat> and um, the Chinese have been influencing our elections. They have been influencing people. And Secretary Pompeo just gave a talk to the National Governors Association uh, alerting people to Chinese uh, influence at the state and local level on top of all of these other things. Uh, the part of China's strategy here is to come to own the United States and to own by owning people and putting them in their pocket and making American business leaders become lobbyists for our mutual interests in the halls of Congress. 
over to the Chinese mainland itself. Yes. Can you comment on the status of press freedom in China? Well, <clears throat> it is a completely, it's a totalitarian state in China. And uh, although the internet gets into a certain meaningful portion of the population, it's still a fraction. And, uh, <clears throat> but the Chinese have set up the, uh, the, what they call the Great Firewall. And uh, they will censor websites. They will uh, shut down the entire internet to uh, an entire Chinese province sort of for weeks at a time. A modern-day version of the Great Wall. It, it, it is, exactly. And, the, uh, and, of course, Beijing's monopoly of information and communications is – one of the key elements of the internal security system of the Chinese regime. The, the central fact of political life in China is the illegitimacy of the regime, the fact that it rules without the consent of the governed, and because it is illegitimate, the regime fears its own people. And so it has a massive internal security system, informants everywhere, the Lao Gai, a word that the major media won't tell you about, but the Lao Gai is the Chinese gulag archipelago. Uh, we at least are hearing something about how the Muslim Uyghurs in East Turkestan, which the Chinese call Xinjiang province, uh, <clears throat> I have been incarcerated in these so-called re-education camps. But <clears throat> in addition to the informants and the punishments and all of that, the, the regime maintains its control of people by maintaining a kind of an ideological conformity uh, and complete monopoly of information and communications. And if there's ever going to be political change in China, it's going to have to be where the people are capable of communicating with one another and rising up and bringing about that political change internally. Dr. John Lenchowski founder of the Institute of World Politics. Thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Link. Update One is a production of the National Press Club's Broadcast Podcast Committee. You can comment on this podcast or any episode of Update One by sending an email to update one podcast. That's update the number one podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Update One. Update One.